Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are honored to welcome back to VBM Rabbi Dr. Alan Brill. He has taught with us before, and I would encourage you all to check out our learning library on our website to see his uh, past presentations. His talk today will be on Judaism and religious diversity, global meetings with Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. And I also want to thank uh, Temple Emmanuel in Denver for co-hosting today's event. Rabbi Professor Alan Brill is the Cooperman Ross Endowed Chair for Jewish Christian Studies at Seton Hall University. Brill is an expert on interfaith relations. He is the author of many books, including Judaism and World Religions, Christianity, Islam, and Eastern Religions, Judaism and Other Religions, Models of Understanding. Brill was a Fulbright Senior Scholar Award for Research and Teaching at Banaras Hindu University, Varanasi, Uttar Pradesh in India. Sorry if I mispronounced any of those words. This research produced his recent volume, Rabbi on the Ganges, A Jewish-Hindu Encounter. His forthcoming book is A Jewish View of the Trinity, Incarnation, and Salvation. He has done interfaith work in Indonesia, India, UAE, Turkey, Sri Lanka, and elsewhere. So please welcome Rabbi Dr. Alan Brill. Thank you. Um, you know, I show up today with a heavy heart. Many of us are still mourning the tragic and barbaric events of this week. Um, and so this is in some way the first downtime in a very difficult week. But I should have you know that we've reached a stage that I've spent a lot of this week in connection with Jewish-Muslim dialogue and encounter groups all over the world, that we've all recommitted not to let this affect the Jewish-Muslim dialogue, and that goes on in, whether in New Jersey, the Middle East, or in Singapore, meaning both sides have really recommitted to saying they understand the pain on both sides and to continue going forward and realizing that these political events should not end the dialogue that we've spent decades working on and the institutions we've spent our time building. So that's a point just right from the start you would have never expected that uh, 20 years ago, that sense of deep commitment all over the world to keep the Jewish-Muslim dialogue going. Um, now, to think about uh, interfaith, if you're going to deal with contemporary political issues, you think of the era now, whether it's Obama or Trump or Biden, the first place you look is not to think about the Eisenhower, Nixon, and Johnson administrations. So, too, if you want to understand the current political issues of Ukraine and Russia, you don't look at the Cuban Missile Crisis as your major flashpoint. So, too, if there's anything I'm going to say provocative today, don't speak about the early 1960s with uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, Rabbi Soloveitchik, Rabbi Mark Tannenbaum, Cardinal Bea. Don't give me the events of the early 1960s if you want to talk about interfaith today. Uh, interfaith today is in a very different place. It's in a different location uh, than it was then. Now, Vatican II, which is what everyone wants to talk about back in 1965, is where the Catholic Church declared that Jews did not kill Christ, the Christian Church does not support anti-Semitism, that Christianity comes from Judaism, and that we should engage in dialogue. That's all it said. It took another 20 years until Pope John Paul II acknowledged that Judaism was an ongoing religion, that the Holocaust happened and he's contrite for it, and acknowledge the state of Israel. So that was 20 years later. What happened was 
You all know the events of 9-11. And then all of a sudden, the world changed in that people realized that religion is back in the news. No longer are we one secular state and another state. You now talk about Christian nationalism and Christian evangelicals and Islamicist movements and all sorts of religious movements after 9-11. And 9-11 was when most of the current interfaith organizations got started in order to learn to speak to one another and to not have that extreme. You now had uh, organizations to bring interfaith to college campuses, interfaith to congregations. But at this point, it's about diversity and pluralism. It is not the issues of the 60s, but there's brand new issues. And part of what made this possible is one, after 1965, uh, U.S. started allowing people to ha- immigrate to America from Asian countries. Until then, there were very few in America, certainly none, certainly from Africa also. It became the fact that globe travel, uh, flights could now go all over, the co- that great cosmopolitan age in which you can travel all over. It meant religions actually met up with each other. And, you know, personally, I live in this little corridor of New York, New Jersey, that's the most religiously diverse place on Earth and the most linguistically place diverse on Earth with over 100 and something local religions. Uh, And New Jersey being unlike the rest of USA, New Jersey, the big religions are Catholicism, Judaism, Hinduism and Islam with large Sikh and Buddhist communities. And that also changes the this dynamics. I have been to parts of the country where this is certainly not like local. Now, I have too much to say, and in some ways too little, because we only have a little bit of time. Now, how did I get into this originally? Is originally I, um, my ordination is from Yeshiva University. I studied a doctorate in mysticism. Mysticism had a certain comparative element. I was brought into interfaith in 1999-2000 by one of my teachers, Rabbi Walter Wurzberger, who had been doing it since the 1960s. And at some point, I then got assigned to the various alphabet soup of Jewish organizations, WJC, AJC, RCA. On some level, I had some foot in all of them. But after 9-11, it became an incredible public event to do interfaith, to talk about it, to say what we want to do. And most of it was to say you can't be, to move people from exclusivist to various inclusivist and pluralist point of views. In 2004, I put out a book in some ways giving a Jewish version of theology of other religions, theology of interfaith. Uh, in 2000, um, 2004, I gave the paper. 2007, I wound up having a position at Seton Hall, which I'm still the resident a possessor of a chair in interfaith. And in 2010, 2012, my book, Judaism and Other Religions, Judaism and World Religions, came out. And then in 13, I won a Fulbright to do Jewish-Hindu encounter. But as I said, we're now dealing with an area of diversity. And the most important thing I'm going to tell you now is to do interfaith is you have to go out of your comfort zone. You actually have to go know another religion. You cannot do it in an armchair way. You cannot do it from your college textbook in world religions. You actually have to go out, meet people, and know their 21st century versions. That is very important because the same way Jews are not giving Leviticus sacrifices, nor they have medieval metaphysical schemes, so too your Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu neighbors have long since done 20th and 21st century versions of their faith. At this point, where you might have thought in the 1960s interfaith was as if two opposing sides 
Catholics versus Jews on two opposite tables. Now we define interfaith as the multiple dimensions of how individuals and groups who orient around religion differently interact with one another, along with the implications of this interactions for communities, civil societies, and global politics, meaning we're always engaged in interfaith. And a lot of the cases just may be you go meet somebody who's not Jewish in a supermarket and you just ignore it. In other cases, you know when their holidays are, or you have a multi-faith calendar, or you've gone to different events. And you have to know why you're there. Interfaith is no longer an essence of Catholicism meeting an essence of Judaism. Now, one of the things we say is all interfaith is local. You have to know what the issue are is in your country and in your region and what you're doing. Interfaith is contextual. There's always a context of what brought you there and what the goals are. And it's about actual interactions. So therefore, you have to know what you expect. What are you trying to do? What are you trying to learn? And therefore, interfaith in Poland or in Arizona or in Java or in the Emirates will all be slightly different because of different needs and different concerns. Okay? Okay, if you can see if you can see the slide, that is a current Sefer Torah donated by uh, by Salmon of Saudi Arabia to the local congregation in Riyadh. They have actually been davening with it and around the Sefer Torah in Saudi Arabia. There are many Jews who right now are in Saudi Arabia for business long term. They have a synagogue there, and you can get kosher food delivered to almost any major hotel in Riyadh. That only occurs through interfaith. Know that at this point, most of the Muslim countries in the world have given up on Wahhabism and Salafism. It is not what they want, and they're now working on moderate forms. And one of the ways they show they become moderate is the Muslim countries now sponsor interfaith and now invite Jews, Catholics, Protestants, Hindus, creates prayer spaces for them. And beyond that, if you're actually engaged in interfaith, you then speak to people in their universities, explaining Judaism to them. I've spoken at universities in the Emirates. You write op-eds you know, showing what the Jewish position is or speaking to the Jewish position back home. And you meet various leaders. There is a process, a dance of softening up so that the Saudi and Riyadh get used to having a Jewish community. Uh, we get used to the fact that they're very sincere, but understand that this is the local concern. So I was there in the Emirates in 2018, before the Abraham Accords. And once again, I spoke at the university. You then had a various, various people gave, Jews, rabbis gave lectures, Muslims listened, and vice versa. It was a chance to go to get to know each other and know that Jews and Muslims are right now in this dance of, you know, where you may think, oh, when there will be an Abraham Accord written. That's not the issue. Right now, there's a much bigger process that's been going on for a much longer time period of engaging in interfaith. But it's not a theological one of Islam versus Judaism. There's a very concrete talking about questions of human rights, human dignity, teaching them Pirkei Avot, some basics of who we are, how we see things, that kosher and halal don't mean the same thing. And within the Emirates, it was, you know, get, really getting to know each other in a process before it all clicked together. And I can't repeat enough how much they are really turning to new philosophies. I can give a whole separate talk on all the new new theologies of Islam now that they've given up their, their Islamicism. Okay, this is me speaking in Yogyakarta in Java, and this is only some of my audience here. In, in the, you may not know that Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world, 
And part of this dance, this process, in summer of 2019, I taught a graduate school course in comparative mysticism. They thought that mysticism for a Sufi country would be a way for them to think we're all one at some level. And but between my graduate courses, I spoke in Islamic colleges all over the country, an intro to Judaism and Judaism and Islam. And they expected 10, 20, 30 to show up. They got over 100 people in each place. And even here, I can't see if you see it. Even in this picture, there's one person who actually has a T-shirt for a Hebrew club they have. Meaning both sides are reaching out to one another. These are all the young people who wanted to take a picture. Um, and in Indonesia, not only was I there for the summer, and uh, speaking all over, and not only have I maintained connections, in 2022, last year, I was in Indonesia for the R20 Summit, which is the religion part of the G20 Summit. So there itself, you should know how interfaith has changed, is that the G20 Summit is no longer just politics, technology, economics, business, but it also has a religious unit. Uh, I was I was the one of the keynote speakers, and if I tell you what went on, you'll get a sense of what interfaith does today. So the local context is Natula Ulama, which is the biggest Islamic party in Indonesia and the world, wants to now get some sort of hegemony and export a tolerant Islam to the world. They were the ones who get who got to set up this event because. Um, Indonesia hosted the G20 last year. What they wanted was to bring back a traditionalist Islam, meaning much more what we call Masorati or traditional and not, not one in a strict sense. And so what we did of our panels, the first panel, after the dignitary spoke, the first panels were on the importance of human rights all over the world, human rights and human dignity. Okay. The next panels, which is what I was on, is how do other religions deal with their difficult texts? So you had the Catholic Church talk about Nostratate, the Mormons talk about how they undid their prejudice against blacks. I dealt with how Judaism deals with difficult texts. And then in the next sessions, they said, here are all the travesties that have gone on in the name of Islam, all the terrible beheadings of ISIS and all that. And then the remainder of it was about how Islam has to change and our representatives all over from Islam getting up to speak that, yes, we pledge ourselves to some moderate form of going forward. And they actually did. They then had conferences on Islamic law about how to go forward. I don't know. You're not going to see it in the American press, but know that many of the imams in Palestine issued a fatwa condemning that Hamas is taking women and children is against Islamic law and this sort of killing is against human dignity. There's a real there is a change going on in another month. I'm going to be at the R20 in Bangalore in India and I don't know what the what the agenda is going to be yet because I'm only told my small part of it and I'm going my small part of it will be to speak about how you can re-narrate connections not just Jews and Catholics, but even Jews and Hindus, you can tell a very different story than the one people have been telling. Um, I have met with other Muslims, for example, the Ottoman Turkish Muslims of the Hizmet Society, uh, the Gulan let me sleep over in his secret compound overnight and listen to his lectures. I mean, I've had connections on many levels, and they're trying to create a universalist Islam. Um, going to Hinduism to give you a sense. Oh, give me the next slide. I've got, I've got to get slides here. Give me number two. Okay, this is local. I said all of it is local. This is here in Teaneck. There was a public, iftar, uh, public pre-iftar event in which Jews showed up to show support for our local Muslims. And the Muslims reciprocated by giving us kosher cookies, 
when we showed up. It was a mutual, um, it was a mutual respect moment. But once again, it's what both communities say: we're going to live here in 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 my city in peace. And the local New Jersey Muslims did this in like forty other towns with the same sense that we're going to work together. Next one. Next slide. Okay, here is an interfaith event that was in my house where various um, uh, various local Middle Eastern uh, Muslims came to into my house to talk. Uh, and we talked about all sorts of things about other religions. And then we can develop a common dialogue. Most of these people are teachers and professors at an Islamic college called Baka al-Jabiya in the, in the Galilee. Um, they then reciprocated by having me at their college the next time I was in the Holy Land. Okay, I do interfaith with Hindus also. But once again, unlike the 1960s, when you think big theology and all this Heschel and Soloveitchik stuff, um, the Hindus most want to talk about bringing back the swastika. They feel it's unfair that the Nazis claimed it, even though they, the Nazis used a hooked cross and not the traditional swastika, which is an image of Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, and Zoroastrianism. And they want help because you have these little schoolgirls with chalk are going to make little ragoli, these chalk drawings for Diwali in front of their homes that contain swastikas, and the local police show up. They want help to try to explain to the authorities in America that the swastika of the Hindus and Jains and Buddhists is not the same as the hooked cross of the Nazis. That is their concern. Um, we're already way past, because there was Jewish-Hindu dialogue in 2007, 8, 9, on the international level, that their chief rabbinate of Israel has recognized that uh, Hinduism worships one God. Most diaspora Hindus see themselves as monists or monotheists. Almost nothing in your textbooks about Hinduism that you learned in a survey course is at, at all 21st century Hinduism. And so what they really want to work on are practical things like reclaiming the swastika. They want to talk about common theory and prayer. So I speak to them comparing Kabbalah uh, and Kabbalah structures to tantric uh, structures. Uh, later in the season, I'm going to be giving a talk for Jains and comparing Jewish concepts of pluralism to Jane concepts of pluralism, how, meaning having a discussion about how the Jane metaphor of the six blind men touching an elephant led to a one type of pluralism versus the Jewish type of pluralism of Elu Elu, that there are many different uh, opinions. So be discussion about where we converge and diverge on these things. Um, Buddhism is Buddhists are at this point really looking for encounters. Uh, recently I've had an encounter with Buddhists in Sri Lanka and they, meaning they don't like when ethnic Jews who practice Buddhist meditation speak for them. I mean, these are real live Buddhists who keep the Jew Buddhist dietary laws, the Buddhist festivals, pray every day the Buddhist prayers. They're not just Buddhists to do a little bit of meditating. And they really want to have a discussion of comparing Judaism and Buddhism. And so with the Buddhists, they usually want to talk about what is the good life. And you talk then about comparing Jewish ethical values to their ethical values and where there is a divergence. Um, but no one's trying to make anyone into the other one. But at the same time, there is a certain learning going on. Some of you may have heard the Dalai Lama wanted to learn from Judaism, and many Jews want to learn from Buddhism. 
And so therefore, even if we have a discussion about ethics, and I'm speaking uh, Talmudic ethics, and they're speaking from the Pali canon, in the end, we know that for Judaism, for compassion, you actually have to get off your seat and do something while they have actually meditations to send compassion to the world, to increase it as a virtue. And on some level, there are many Jews now who have found that helpful in their lives to send compassion to the world. And the Buddhists are now trying to be much more active. And in fact, we have a word for it, engaged Buddhism, like Thich Nhat Hanh is an engaged Buddhist that is now clearly coming from that Jewish Buddhist encounter of the last few decades. <coughs> but now I'm going to return back to Christianity. With that in the background, if anyone comes to me saying they want to do interfaith and they say, oh, I know everything about Rabbi Heschel and Rabbi Soloveitchik and Rabbi Tannenbaum, I say you're looking to do history. You're not doing interfaith. Interfaith has got to be some reference to something currently on the ground with real people uh, that's there. And so therefore, three documents that you should know about that have really changed things, or really more than three documents. In 2000, the liberal Jewish movements put out a document called Dabru Amet, under the, when John Paul II was Pope, acknowledging that Jews and Christians believe in one God. It didn't say very much, but it was a start. But in rapid succession, 2015 to 2017, three documents that are very important came out. One called The Gifts and the Calling Are Not Revoked. Two, Jerusalem and Rome. Three, uh, the will of our Father in heaven. In 2015, 40 years after Nostratante, the Catholic Church put out a document saying that God's gifts to the Jewish people have not been recalled. There's still a covenant, ongoing covenant with the Jewish people. It is the first document that refers to Talmudic texts. It is the first sort of Catholic document that says, oh, Torah is equivalent to Christ, and in some way, where we have Christ, you have Torah, and it said that Jews are saved. Unambiguously, the Jews are saved. But the document continued, how? Answer, we don't know. It's a mystery in future theological uh, theological reflection will determine how. That's a major change, and that's where any discussion of the current Catholic position should start. There are two, two immediate, I mean, two years uh, later responses. One of them is called Jerusalem and Rome, which was signed by the Israeli chief rabbinate, the American Rabbinic Council of America, and the European Rabbinic Organization, that acknowledged that Catholics and Jews have a common God, revelation, ethics, biblical basis. It acknowledged that much of the community was wrong about Vatican II, and you really are trying to mean well, and you're not trying to hit and convert us. We really see the great strides you did in the last 50 years, and it concludes we are separate, but we're going to work together. There's no common, common covenant. So it's non-reciprocal. The Catholic Church is saying there's a common covenant. And the Jewish rabbinate response was no common covenant, but we respect you as having a biblical basis, God, revelation, ethics. The same year, a document came out called Doing the Will of Our Father in Heaven that came out from the circle around uh, Rabbi Shlomo Riskin in Ephrat and also signed on by Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, that said that Jews and Christians have a common heritage and covenant. They are both God, part of God's plan, and that uh, God has a mission to create Christianity, that we have more in common than we have differences, 
and we both have a deep connection to the Holy Land. Parts of the document were clearly written to appeal to the evangelical and Christian Zionist community in a way that Jerusalem and Rome were written to appeal to the Catholic audience. But here we have very clear, this is the starting point, these three documents, they're all available online. And this is the starting point to go forward for discussions. Whenever we talk now, this is where we get started. And we know the context of all of these is uh, what the specific context is. But in the last three years, we've gone further. COVID has some way, did, did some sort of change in everybody that 20 years ago, Pope John Paul II led a big communal prayer service. It's an interfaith prayer service in which every faith was given its own building to pray in separately. So it doesn't look like common prayer, but everyone prayed at the same time. John Paul II got a lot of flack for that, a lot of pushback. Now that is very common. It is common, not just in Catholicism and Judaism and Islam. That is the way we commonly do things now. We also have a certain sense of having interfaith services. Even people you wouldn't expect, like the Israeli chief rabbi at office or former Sephardic chief rabbi Shlomo Amar, will get up and hold interfaith solidarity events for COVID, for other events, in which they will now talk about all the people of the earth and all the faiths of the earth. That is incredibly brand new. Pope Francis is now giving us a brand new language of fraternity, that all religions are fraternities with one another and that God wills all the religions. And therefore he's given that speech in the Emirates, in Iraq, in Mongolia. And that's becoming the new language. Several U.S. states are now mandating religious education, uh, some sort of interfaith education. So I have been called in to speak to uh, Jewish day school classes about why there should be no different than any other social studies. Know your neighbors, know about the world. And yes, there is wisdom in other religions. We clearly, there is wisdom in other, uh, among non-Jews. Um, at this point, we study in each other's institutions. If you go to University of Chicago Divinity School or Harvard Divinity School or Yale Divinity School, there are Jews on the faculty teaching Judaism. And there are Jewish and Christian graduate students. So you will have Jews and Christians studying from both Jewish and Christian professors. And therefore, both sides are speaking the same language. In 1965, Jews, Protestants, and Catholics could not even go to each other's graduate schools. Meaning if you went to Harvard Div, it meant you were a Protestant only. If you went to... Loyola, and then you were a Catholic. It wasn't the fact that you now go wherever you want. So everyone is speaking the same language now, and there's a greater sense of diversity. I don't have time to go into greater detail. There is also now a new way of thinking. No longer do you do, when you do this, the goal is not comparative religion. The goal is not to create a harmony, but what's called comparative theology. When you see another religion, what does that speak to you within your own religion? If I see a story of a, of a Muslim saint or a Christian saint, what does that awaken within my own Judaism? If I see a passage from another religion, what does that awaken within me? I'm not going to do the comparison, even though that occurs naturally. But it's a form of faith-seeking understanding. Interfaith strengthens your own way of thinking about your own religion. How does this piece of wisdom help explain a piece of my own religion? And therefore, in that light, I'm, I have my next book that's going to be out is called The Jewish View of the Trinity, Incarnation, 
and um, third was uh, salvation, is showing that in 1965, neither side had read each, read each other's books. We only knew each other from medieval from textbook presentations of medieval Catholicism and medieval Judaism. Now we understand it. As late as 2000, neither side really understood the other. But now we go to, since we go to the same graduate schools, we can now explain each other's terms. And my goal is to explain what does the Trinity look like in Jewish terms. Um, that it's not as foreign as you think. I can give a whole separate lecture explaining the differences, but on one foot, Jews arrange things as a hierarchy. So if you say the Shechina is in this lecture, the Shechina is in your synagogue, that is not seen as God's essence. While for Catholics, that's seen as the essence of the Trinity. We divide it differently even when we're using the same biblical language. I am also working on a book that came in, that I wrote during COVID, but my publisher wanted the Trinity book first, called The Jewish View of Religious Diversity meaning to learn to accept wisdom in other religions, to understand what is diversity due to our thinking about other religions, uh, how to think same and difference, how to see this no different than any other social studies, to learn how to get along and be tolerant within one another. And as figures like uh, Rabbi Dean Steinzaltz and others have pointed out, most of the Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, are monotheistic enough by Jewish terms to think otherwise you're not dealing with a 2023 version of it. And part of all this understanding other religions is to stop essentializing. Because in some way, think of Judaism as a pantry of spices. We can produce a Judaism that resonates with Christian ideas and doctrines by putting certain mixture of ingredients and proportions together, and we can produce a similar taste to Christianity. We can do the same thing with Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam and understand we're much more fluid, we're much more of how we can understand each other than we've usually been led to believe. Even with this understanding of other religions, no, we are not compelled to affirm the truth of any other religion, but faith and Judaism doesn't require us to think we already know everything about every other religion. There is much to learn. There is much to be exposed to. But nothing is ever entirely dissimilar that you can't make comparisons or understandings, provided you're comparing myth to myth, law to law, mysticism to mysticism, rationality to rationality. Don't compare myth to law, mysticism to rationality. If you're comparing anything, do the same. And now in conclusion, to stay within my time frame, hospitality is a term stressed by the Jewish thinker Emmanuel Levinas. It means being open to new perspectives through leaving one's own safe precinct. An important element in approaching other faiths is the need to go out of what one already thinks one knows or one's comfort zone. One needs to actually meet someone of another faith placing oneself in a situation where one may not be comfortable with the new perspectives. And that's why at this point, Jews and Muslims could speak this uh, to each other, despite the tragedies in the Holy Land this week. We could speak to each other because we already can put ourselves in the other's places, regardless of where you stand politically. One needs to see, meet, talk, and enter into the realm of the other. In our age of globalization, people now have increasing contact with other religions through business and immigration. And now we've got to learn to incorporate this new perspective within our lives. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Dr. Brill. Um, we would love to open it up to questions or comments from the audience for the remainder of our time together. So if you would like to um, ask a question, please feel free to raise your hands and unmute, or you can always use the chat as well. So I, I see a lot of clergy people who have clergy friends in other faiths, and they are doing the work of connecting and of being open-minded and 
and having hospitality. Um, how do we get that stuff out to the pews and to the people who are not in the pews? So in the pews, I would say immediately you start the social media. There's going to be a Jewish Muslim encounter group meeting in your neighborhood and or your county, and it's now going to start meeting regularly, like once a month. And you you don't let any of the clergy be the speakers. They can come, but you want ordinary people to speak. And there are different methods to do it. I tend to follow a method. I'm on the board of the Interfaith Encounter Association. Its method is basically you speak about ordinary things. Let's compare uh, food practices. Let's compare marriage practices. Let's compare charity and philanthropy. And you get to know each other as people, as religious people, and the ups and downs. And you meet regularly uh, for no more than an hour and a half. You tell two people, one on each side, to, you know, prepare, you know, four minutes, and then you just go around with everybody saying something. And after enough years, you've really built it up on in the pew and on the normal level. You'd be surprised if you now said as a Jewish, I don't know how large where you live or how large the Muslim community is where you live or the Jewish community. Uh, but if you have a sufficient number of each, you just start these lay groups. That's certainly one way to start. You start showing up support for one another. If the Muslims are having a uh, pre-Ramadan event, you then tell them we want a Jewish contingent to show solidarity. Trust me, they will be touched and they will reciprocate and show up at whatever holiday that you want them to show solidarity. I would love to um, ask you about, um, it's probably been a while since you've read Kwame Appiah's Cosmopolitanism. Yeah. Um, but how you think about that in relationship to kind of our Jewish discourse of universalism and particularism, uh, which I think of a little bit as being there's us as Jews and then there's uh, like we're just Jews and then there's other groups that are solely kind of their their group. And part of what I understand Appiah's argument to be there, and it's not just him, there's others who think like this, is that um, we're multiple things and um, not just uh, um not just a part of one group um and we're so many things that it kind of dilutes a little bit some of that particularism um but anyways i i don't want to talk much let me throw it back to you so the answer for that is that's dealing with our citizenship our belonging in society you mean in that sense we all have you know it's common now to have if you're jewish to have relatives who are not jewish or christian or buddhist whatever they are we all have all sorts of interconnections with people we work with, places we're embedded within. And that's what he's talking about, how we create societies and citizenship. Important topic, but it really is not the same as today's topic, which was we how religions as dealing with their particularism relate to other religions. <clears throat> that's the first thing is to move from an exclusivist point of view to some form of inclusivist, universal, or pluralist point of view in order to make space for the others. Universalism in dealing with other religions usually means, like my Indonesian Muslims, who believe there's a mystic truth greater than any one religion, universalism there is different than the universalism of citizenship and, and other things that he's talking about in cosmopolitan. I'd like to ask one. Uh, Rabbi, thank you so much for being on here and your many years of incredible work with Interface. Uh, it is an inspiration to all of us here. Um, I know my great mentor, Rabbi Shmili, has said so many amazing things about you. Um, you. Something that's coming up to mind to me right now is um, multiple situations that we've been where um, we find that certain um, religions have a, a theology of of not doing wrong um, when harm is caused and uh, saying that that is not in the name of said religion. Whereas I feel that in Judaism, we call our wrongs. We, we call our wrongs immediately. And this causes a barrier to continue to strive for any mm -hmm. sort of multi um, 
multi-faith collaborative action. And I've actually been <laughs> kicked out of a Jewish Muslim interfaith talk because I um, was a, I was called a donkey, a Jewish donkey. And when I said, you know what, if, if, if we, you know, if, if something were to happen to you and we were in a Jewish event, I would immediately call whoever is Jewish out and say that, you know, that, that is horrific. Um, but we were met with the fact that, well, that's, that's not Islam or that's not, um, you know, other examples where we've been present where that's not Christianity, that's not Islam. How do we move towards a, an appropriate way to call out and say, you know what, that is what we are yeah. dealing with here? So I'll give you several answers. One, whenever you have these working groups, the first thing you do is read the riot act before you start that you're not allowed to insult anyone or anyone else's religion. There are actually rules for dialogue. There are several of these versions, and any that's the ground rules before meeting. That's Interfaith 101. Whether you read Len Swidler's version or the and any of the other versions, you start with that, and everyone's got to agree with that before going forward. People have a tendency to say, that's not my religion because I am I am a Reformed Jew, so therefore the fanatics on the West Bank are not me. I am a liberal Javanese Muslim, so therefore the fanatics in whatever country these days is not me. That, <coughs> that is a natural tendency because people identify with their own group. And you have to keep, you mean you have to understand the localness and even understand why they say such a thing. How do they see their box and their parameters? of what they think a Christian means or what a Muslim means, because you'll learn a lot from that. Three, most people do not actually know the extent of their religion, meaning because most religions are very broad and all religions have the good, the bad, the ugly, the wonderful, and the terrible. Very few of us own the whole gamut. Part of my book, Judaism and Other Religions, is because I owned the gamut, but understand that like when I was in whether Java or the Emirates or in Turkey, they are clearly saying, yes, we've got to own our bad parts and we've got to come up with our calculus of what we do with our bad parts. Part of the Catholic Church is they said, look, we've got a lot of bad parts. We put out Nostra Tate, now the gifts and the calling. But us in the Jewish community are still pressing them to undo several medieval documents that are still on the books. Even they're not completely affecting anyone right now, but we realize anything that's still in the books may still show up at some point. So, so that's the point also, is very people want, people don't take ownership, meaning they're gonna to want to say, yes, we disown that, but then you still have to then talk through the dynamic of it. How do you see it? What does that mean? Because um, they certainly know that Islamophobia put all American Muslims in danger, even though they weren't the ones behind Al-Qaeda or Daesh. Maybe I will. Um, hello. Um, Hi, Miriam. Professor, hello. So nice to see you here. Uh, thank you so much for the class and everything you're doing uh, for, for the dialogue and also beyond that. Um, I'm thinking two questions, actually. One is... What do we, how do we, I mean, on two minutes uh, probably for that, but it's too, too short. But what do we do with the difficult texts in our own, you know, the texts that are very exclusively excluding everyone who is not us? And the second question, what can we do now? What kind of action and activities we can get involved in, in current situation after the tragic okay. events of last week? So... The first question is, you've got to actually own the text and say they're not binding. There are enough great rabbis, whether from the last generation or the current generation, you know, of all three movements that basically say in Judaism, those texts are not binding. We repudiate them. They're incorrect. There are contemporaries who will then repeat that continuously. Whether you need on the reform side Eric Yaffe or Saperstein and the Orthodox side, I'll give you, you know, 
you know, recently everyone from Rev. Lichtenstein up now to Rev. Yoni Rosenzweig and on, that they're being publicly repudiated and come, you know, this is this is not who we are and we've repudiated those texts. And you say it loud, say it clearly. Uh, the conservative movement put out a response uh, a number of years ago, very conservative Judaism, put out a very strong response uh, openly repudiating the Jewish, and they did a very nice job. Um, and before the fact is, I got involved in that because they wound up quoting me 18 times. So they thought, people thought that I was one of the authors. But um, that's one. What to do now is that's why you have to start interfaith, not at the moment of stress, at the moment of tragedy. It's when you do it, when you need it, when you've got the ability to set it up. Now is the time for the Jewish evangelical, Jewish Catholic, Jewish Sikh, uh, Jewish Hindu to create your to create the dialogue and encounter groups. This may not be if you're not already in the Jewish Muslim one. This is probably it's not the week to start it, <coughs> but know that within a month or two there will be people starting groups to say let's turn down the animosity. People who watch. Because now you've got both Jews and Muslims in America attacking each other, uh, rioting against each other, and attacks in synagogues and mosques, at least potentially. And then people will rediscover the wheel and want to say, look, let's have groups working. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Dr. Brill, for your wonderful presentation. Um, again, this is not your first time teaching with us, so I'd encourage everyone to look in our learning library for past classes. And thank you all for being here today. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.